Thank you, Buck. That was uh, very kind. Um, It is really a delight to be here this morning, partly because uh, I have not been in front of my own students in person since uh, the very beginning of March last year. I'm a campus minister at, uh, at Emory, and Emory has been one of the more restrictive schools, um, probably because they're uh, basically share property with the CDC, uh, and so they, uh, they probably can't get out of line too much uh, without some sort of recourse. But uh, So it's, it's great to, to be here, to see faces, to be able to bring the word to you this morning, and especially to be able to do it for my dear friend, Buck, and I have been praying for this church and, and praying for him and his family throughout this whole process, and so it really is amazing to sort of see it come to fruition and to be here. We are going to look at Psalm 77. It's one of my favorite psalms, and I hope that it's life-giving uh, to us this morning. And so let me, uh, let me read our text, and then I'll pray, and then we'll take a look at it. This is Psalm 77. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? And then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God. You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You with your arm redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep troubled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Let me pray. Father, I ask this morning that you would give us deep understanding of this text and that we would see the honesty and the vulnerability and the sincerity of what the psalmist is bringing before you and that we would resonate with it, that we would connect, that we would be fed, that we would see your son Jesus and that we would leave from this place glorifying you, praising you, finding comfort in you. And we pray uh, these things in Jesus' name, amen. One of the things that my family and I have been doing in the midst of the pandemic, uh, 
that we did every now and then, but we weren't doing it all the time or faithfully or consistently is a family movie night. I have uh, two eight-year-olds. They turn nine in, in one month, uh, so twins. And uh, so a lot of the movies that we choose are sort of appropriate for them or geared towards them. And one of my favorites this past year, uh, though it came out, I think, in 2019, was uh, Lego Movie 2, the second part. And it's a sequel to the first Lego movie. And, um, you know, in, in, in the first one, the protagonist, sort of uh, this happy-go-lucky guy named Emmett, uh, it's animated, of course, he's this, the, a Lego character, if you haven't seen it, and he overcomes odds, and he does it with such a great attitude, and everything's restored at the end of that movie, it won't take time to explain the first one, but in the second movie, the movie basically opens up uh, with his girlfriend named Lucy, also known as Wild Style, and she is recounting how they have come to live in this broken and devastated world that they have renamed from Bricksburg to Apocalypseburg. And five years earlier, in the retelling of the story, five years earlier, some aliens had visited and gotten out of the ship. Uh, Emmett, of course, in his uh, Pollyannish outlook in life, makes a Lego heart, tries to hand it to the aliens, and they just eat the heart and start destroying and ravaging the world. And uh, repeated times, over and over again, they keep visiting uh, to bring destruction on Bricksburg. And at one point, Lucy says, this new life has toughened and hardened us all. Except for Emmett. Emmett is still the happy-go-lucky protagonist. And as Lucy is narrating this dark story, we find Emmett in a coffee shop. Uh, he's ordering coffee with light cream and 25 sugars. And as he's leaving the coffee shop, he steps out on the street and he almost gets run over. But then he just laughs it off and he pops his headphones on. And he starts to play uh, this song that the Lego movie has made uh, popular. The song, Everything is Awesome. Except in the second film, it's the Tween Dream Remix of the song and the opening lyrics are I wake up in the morning wide awake for the day and I say what a morning it's all okay it's all real and that's why I feel everything is awesome and then in the next scene uh, Emmett is next to Lucy and they're on this vista overlooking what has become Apocalypseburg and she says everything was awesome now everything is bleak and the movie sort of unfolds from that place. And in this early scene, I think that Lucy and Emmett, to me, as I was watching it, they provide such a contrast to how a lot of us approach the world. In general, before COVID, but especially since. And if I had to guess, I think that a lot of us probably relate a little more to Lucy than we do to Emmett. That we've grown cynical and we say with her, this world has hardened us all. I've been in Emmett most of my life, but even over the last year or so, I've been drifting over to Lucy as she says that reality. But whether you are more like Lucy or more like Emmett, I think that we tend not to deal well with the sadness and the brokenness of this world, the fracturing that has been so amplified over the past year or so. And there is lots of it, right? The, the pandemic and the havoc that it has caused, the state of race and politics in America, recent tragedies that you may have experienced in your family, addictions that are struggled with, sin that cannot be overcome, or maybe it is all of it together. 
And the Psalms invite us to do something with all of it. To bring our emotions to God even when we are not able to articulate exactly what we are feeling in our hearts. And I think that's often the power of the Psalms. That they are describing things that we do not think that we can say out loud. Or maybe we don't know how to say them out loud. And I remember the exact feeling the first time that I really understood Psalm 77. That really resonated with me. Anytime that I teach from a psalm, my hope is that we would learn that the psalms are given to God's people to help express emotion to God, whether that is emotion of, of sadness or of gladness, to learn how to praise him, to learn how to be comforted, to learn how to be met by the Lord. And I want to see how that is done in Psalm 77. But first, I just want to share quickly a little bit of my own story, which I will not take time to go into this morning. But in 2003, it was probably uh, the, the, the year that I met Buck. Uh, we had gotten back from our honeymoon. And uh, five days after that, we experienced a, an incredibly traumatic, violent crime that happened at our house. And it, it you turned the world upside down, especially something so um, soon after this sort of life transition, getting married, spending a wonderful time together on a honeymoon, and then we come back and, and this huge thing happens. And then a year or so after that, we started to experience a medical issue that persisted uh, in our marriage that was um, a, a hard thing for over eight years and as I have looked back and have thought about those things, I realized that I, I buried most of the emotion that I was experiencing at the time. And my wife, who was much more emotionally mature and still is in a lot of ways, she was getting worn down. We had good theology, but we sometimes felt cursed at worst or just ignored at best. There's just a lot of anger and sadness, and I did not know what to do with it. And I remember a distinct time uh, in seminary years later when I, I stumbled across the psalm again. I had maybe read it several times before, but, but because of things that I had experienced, it, it hit me. And it, there was this comfort that I could not describe just in reading it, just in putting myself in the psalmist's shoes and letting his words be my words. And it did that, I think, because there are two things, two truths that lead to healing. And that's what I want to look at this afternoon. And so first, it is good and right and beautiful to bring struggle before the Lord. Sometimes I think that we get caught in the idea that God only wants us when we're happy, when we are put together. And as you look at scripture, you realize that that's just wrong. That those are lies that we tell ourselves or sometimes that we hear from other people. Listen to how the psalmist approaches God here. Verse 1, I cry aloud to God, aloud to God. Verse 2, in the night my hand is stretched out without wearying, my soul refuses to be comforted. Verse 3, when I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. Verse four, I'm so troubled that I cannot speak. Verse seven, will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Verse eight, 
Has his love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Verse 9, has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Now I want to pause right here as we hear that and just consider the weight of what is being said here. This is a man who has come to an end of himself. He cannot bear the circumstances that he is in any longer. He is worn out. And it is obvious that he would like his circumstances to be changed, to be different, but he's realized that he doesn't have the power to do it. He cannot change those circumstances himself. And so he's taking it all to the Lord. He's being utterly honest before him. And I think that this challenges us to ask if we have the freedom, if you are a Christian, to go before God and to lay it all out before him with the same kind of honesty and vulnerability that we see here from the psalmist. And not just the psalmist. In Hebrews chapter 5, the author of Hebrews tells us about Jesus that in the days of his flesh, this is verse 7, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. If we are at a place where we cannot follow the psalmist or, the Jesus, or Jesus' example, we have to ask the question, why? And I think that is often because we think that either God doesn't care or that he cannot help. And again, those are lies that we sometimes get caught up in because neither of those things are true. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And the question is, do we actually believe those words from Jesus, that he is able to give rest? Because one of the ways I think that that happens is in the second part of this psalm, or maybe in sort of the middle third. And that is that a change in perspective is more important than a change in our circumstance. We have gotten to a place, I think a lot in our culture, where the path to happiness or the path to joy, because we sometimes conflate those two, though we shouldn't, that's a sermon for another time, that the path to those things is through changing our circumstances, removing pain, removing hardship, removing suffering, removing struggle, and to the degree that we're able to accomplish that, we will find those things. But as we look to the gospel, as we look to scripture, we actually find that it's the change in perspective that brings joy, not a change in circumstances. What does the psalmist do after he comes to an end in himself? He remembers who God is. He recalls what he has done. He is preaching to himself the truth of God's promises. Verses 10 through 14 come down like this strong wave of affirmation. To remind the psalmist, who is in charge? Then I said, I will appeal to this. This is verse 10, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord and I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all of your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God. You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. 
I love that question, what God is great like our God. And so he goes and he recounts in the rest of the psalm all of the ways that God has led his people through troubled times. Most clearly, he took Israel out of slavery, out of Egypt, through the troubled waters of the Red Sea, into and through the wilderness where he was with them, providing for them into the promised land where there was still trouble, and yet he was still there with them. And you get the sense that no matter where God led his people, where he leads his people, he always provides for them in the midst of it in the midst of the struggle, in the midst of the adversity. And if you know anything about the Old Testament, you know how much struggle God's people went through. But it was to the degree of that trouble where there was a greater degree of God's presence in witness and togetherness with his people. It is the reality of the gospel that when you really see the degree of your own sin and your own brokenness before God and how much suffering and struggle there really is. You see how great is the work of Jesus on the cross to redeem and to renew his people and to bring about renewal on the earth. When you marvel at the benefits of being united with Jesus Christ by faith, the removal of sin, the receiving of his righteousness, the becoming heirs with Christ as a brother or a sister, eternal life, it starts to shape your perspective on this life, that the eternal becomes greater than the temporal, that the invisible becomes greater than the visible. Joy in the midst of sorrow. We sing about that in a lot of our songs, Joy in the Midst of Sorrow. I want to throw this out here too. I think this is the sermon for another time as well, but sometimes I think we fail to ask that question of what actually is joy? How do we know that we are experiencing it, receiving it? And I won't take the time to go into this too much, but I think that one of the principal characteristics of joy is the biblical idea of rest the biblical idea of Sabbath. So that when Jesus says, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you what? I will give you rest. I think one of the things that he is saying there is come to me and I will give you joy. Experiencing joy in the gospel is knowing what it's like. It's experiencing this concept of rest. I would love to unpack that more, maybe another time. When Leslie and I were, my wife, in the throes of hard times, I think that just reading Psalm 77 reminded us that whether everything got better or not, God was good to us in Jesus. That even if the worst had happened in our sort of our first uh, first ordeal after we had gotten married, God still would have been good and loving. Jesus would still be king and God's face would still be shining upon us. His presence still delighting. And that perspective, and this was hard to wrestle with during the time, but that perspective does not mean that pain won't be experienced in the midst of hard circumstances, but that joy can be found in the midst of them by recalling the greatness of God's salvation in Jesus that we have a brother who walks with us. I think to really capture, I think, some of the power of this psalm, I want to probably break the rules of of preaching a little bit 
and, and use a Christmas story, a Christmas illustration, it's, it's something that has uh, really been on my mind, I think, over the last month. Uh, I was asked to preach on Luke 2, where the angel shows up to the shepherds to tell them of this uh, good news of great joy that has come because of the incarnation of Jesus. And there at the end, right, it, it's news that leads to uh, peace on earth and goodwill to men. And I was reminded of the, the famous poem by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, Christmas Bells. You're probably familiar with it. Maybe you know a little bit of the story, but in case you don't, I want to give a little bit of background to it because I think it's helpful as it mirrors in some ways Psalm 77. It was written in the middle of the Civil War, 1863. It was actually, the poem was penned on Christmas Day. And two years uh, prior to uh, Henry um, Watcher Longfellow writing that, his wife was in their home and she was stamping envelopes with hot wax and her dress had caught on fire. And uh, Longfellow was taking a nap. He he wakes up to what was going on. He tries to put it out. He burns himself uh, in... um, uh, the process of that, in fact, the, the, the beard that sort of made him famous was actually a part of that was to hide some of the burns that he experienced in that. His wife did not survive um, what had happened. And his life had changed. He, he struggled. He, he had five young kids. So a couple years passed, and his oldest son, Longfellow, was a staunch abolitionist, um, and his son had wanted to, Charlie had wanted to go fight in the war, and so he had left. And uh, a month or so before he wrote Christmas Bells, he had received word that his son had been shot through the back, uh, through the shoulder, and didn't know if he was going to make it or not. And so he had to go and retrieve him from Washington and bring him back. And it was around Christmas time where he heard all of the cheer uh, peace on earth, goodwill to men. And he was struggling with that concept. And so here he is, December 25th, 1863, recently widowed with five children, the oldest of which may not make it. And he hears the bells and he hears the singing of peace on earth uh, and goodwill to men. And he just feels the dissonance. And so he pins the powerful poem. I won't read the whole thing. I hope you look it up later. But I want to read just a few stanzas as we wrap up here. It opens up this way. I heard the bells on Christmas Day. Their old familiar carols play, and wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And as the stanzas go on, he starts to feel that peace uh, fall apart. And so we come to the last two stanzas. And in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. But listen to how he ends. He does it in the same way as the psalmist. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail, with peace on earth, goodwill to men. What I want us to see here is that Longfellow was doing the same thing that the psalmist was doing In Psalm 77, that he confronts the ugly reality of the broken world that he was living in and what it felt like to him. 
And it made him question whether God was even there. And then he allows the word of God to have the final say. That the word of God speaks more loudly than the noise of the world. And so I end with just a few questions. What hard thing have you been hesitant to really bring before the Lord in your own life? Or what is something hard that you've seen in a family member or a friend or a coworker that you could encourage them to name? And if you do not know how to pray that thing before the Lord, my encouragement and challenge is that just looking at the psalm this afternoon would give you the freedom to pray the words that are in it if you do not know what to pray. Put yourself in the shoes of the psalmist. And then to ask, can you recall God's goodness to you and to the church and to your family and to friends and say with the psalmist, what God is great like our God, even if you are not doing great. And then lastly, I just want to say that the big picture is that there is a joy that comes from knowing what God has done for you in Christ's life and in his death and in his resurrection. When, again, we look at who works in the way that our God works, that we remember the wonders of old, that we remember the deeds of the Lord, that you are the God who works wonders. What is the principal wonder that God has worked for his creation? It is in the coming of Jesus Christ. It is in his life of obedience to his father. It is in him going to the cross and dying for us. And it is in the resurrection. It is the greatest wonder that God has ever worked for his people. So when we think about remembering the works of old and God's wonders, let us Center it specifically on that. And let's find solace and rest and joy from these sweet words that I hope that maybe you will visit this week. Let me pray. Father, I confess that I often do not have the courage that the psalmist has here. I experience gladness and happiness a lot of time, and I know that many people in this room do, and maybe they're in the midst of a really good place right now. For those of us who aren't, and for those of us who may get there, may you allow us to come to your son, weary and heavy laden, and find in him rest, and find in him joy. We pray in his name, amen.